All right, welcome everybody. Glad you guys are here. Glad you guys have chosen to join us here this morning. Love seeing so many faces in the room. A few more folks here this week, so that is great. I know there's a lot of you folks that are watching online as well. We welcome you, you guys too. And uh, this morning, I tell you what, uh, I, I think I had to remind myself as I got up this morning that this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it because been hard to find some places to rejoice uh, around us recently. I'm not sure if you've noticed that or not. Tell you what, you guys in the room, you guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, if you're at home, do what you want. Um, <laughs> but you guys here, you guys can, can sit down. Uh, we're not going to shake hands or anything. We're still going to hold off on that just a little bit. But um, it, it's been tough to talk about uh, rejoicing, and it's been tough to, to, to look at things. I saw, uh, I don't know if you guys watched the, uh, the rocket uh, launched yesterday. If y'all mm. saw the, the SpaceX rocket, I think that's the coolest thing ever. Um, and I saw a lot of people that were posting online like, hey, those two guys just left Earth. Good choice. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think they might have the right idea, which I, I totally get that. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. This song that we just... Uh, we, it's not mine. It was online. Um, uh, this song that we just just sang, though, I think is perfect for us, that, he, that, that, that God will lead us safely through the storm. Uh, and it feels like in our culture that we're in the midst of a storm. And uh, here's what I've learned over uh, 10 years of being a, a pastor here, at least pretty close to 10 years of being a pastor here, is that um, I don't know that the storm stops. I, I mean, I know that right now there's, there's particularly some amazing uh, and, and difficult things going on that we can, we can watch on our news feeds, that we can see uh, that we can see happening on, uh, on, our, on our news stations and, and frankly, all around us. Um, but the storm doesn't stop, and the storm doesn't stop because we live in a fallen world full of sinful people that do sinful things. We live in a world where evil is a very real thing, and it has to be confronted on a regular basis. And, and because of that, there will always be cultural storms going on around us. There will always be things that are happening to us. And so I I have prayed a lot this week. I, if you guys have not been around Providence for a while, if you're watching online, you've not seen a lot of what, uh, what we do here at Providence. I don't chase news stories very much. I don't talk about news stories a, a whole lot, uh, in part because, frankly, the, what, what the news determines is important is usually not the most important thing for us to be addressing. It's usually not the best thing for us to be talking about. And as you've heard me say numerous times, and I'm going to address further in my sermon today, uh, the, the news has an agenda, which, frankly, the more chaos and the more division, the better business is for them. Uh, and so I don't like chasing the news stories. That being said, um, whenever it feels like things reach a particularly fervent pitch, I think it's good for us as God's people to discuss what's our reaction to that. What is our stance on some of these things? How do we respond to some of these things? And so this morning, during this time, what I want to do is pray. Uh, in the sermon, I will address some things a little bit more fully. That will not be the, the entirety of the sermon, talking about uh, race and, and all the other things that we've, we've seen going on. That's not going to be the entirety of my sermon. But we're going to address that, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more. But now, during this time, what I want to do is I just want to pray. And I want to make sure... Uh, that, that as we pray, that we do so with a, with a humble heart and as people that are here ready and willing to listen. And I also want to address just up front because uh, this, this tends to be the narrative that gets put out there. I feel like we should address this, not uh, particularly the, the race issue, not because uh, I feel any sense of, of white guilt, 
not because I, I feel that there is any sense of, um, uh, because I feel that there is, there is any sense of, of which all white people are guilty because we are white or because of what the history of our country has been. I don't share that opinion. Uh, but that being said, there are some things that we need to talk about and we need to be frank about. So I say that uh, up front. I want to talk about that up front because what we, what we do have to deal with is, is the reality that race is, is an issue uh, for us in this country. No matter how you want to talk about it, it is an issue for us uh, to discuss. And specifically, if you want to talk about racism and what racism looks like, and that word has a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people. And I think that's really at the heart of why so much gets missed, because we talk right past one another. Uh, whenever we start talking about the, the word racism. But the, re the reality is that, that the same fervor, the same passion, the same anger that we lash out and that we fight and rage against abortion, we should have that same kind of fervor and passion whenever we talk about racism. Because it's rooted in the same thing, the image of God, the inherent value of every human because they are created in the image of God. It, 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 it drives and it's rooted in the exact same place. And so we need to give a full-throated response so that we're clear on some things. And I think for the most part, a lot of us in here are probably on the same page. I don't know that I'm, uh, you, you know, part of the reason why I, I feel like we haven't talked about this a ton is because it's kind of, you know, the, the preaching to the choir, like we're all on the same page. But maybe we're not on the same page. I don't know. But I want to make sure that we talk about this and that we pray about this in a way that God has led me to talk about it. And I hope you guys will hear and you will, um, you, you, you'll be able to, to, to follow along and, and echo some of these sentiments uh, in, your, in your heart. So what I want to be able to do is I want to give a loving Christian response to what we've seen. And I want to begin that with prayer today, and then we'll talk more about it when we get to the sermon. So let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, I stand here... Um, wholly inadequate words to say. But before I even get to, to those words, I have to marvel at the fact that I can come to you and that I can cry out for help and that I can cry out for your, your mercy on me and that I can know that you have, you have set your heart and you have set your affection on your people. And that because of that, we can come to you, we can trust you, we can, we can sing songs that we know that you will lead us through the storm. So this morning, Father, I, I come and I want to ask for a, a few things, humbly but boldly, ask for a few things of me and of this congregation, these people here at Providence. Father, I want to ask, uh, first of all, for repentance. Grant us this mercy of re repentance. Where we have sinned willfully, forgive us. Where we have sinned unintentionally or ignorantly, Father, we ask for your mercy. Where we have responded poorly, where we have remained silent or spoke in ignorance, Father, I pray that you would grant us a repentance, a sorrow, and a change of heart to be more in line with you. 
Father, I ask for wisdom this morning for myself and for your people. Father, I pray that you will teach us when to speak and when to listen. When to learn and when we should teach. When we should sit down and when we should stand up. When we should weep and when we should shout. When we should be broken and when we should be bold. Father, I know that each of these things has their place in time. Father, give us discernment to know when and where and how to be able to use each of these things. Father, we know that Jesus did each of these things. And that maybe the places where he wept and the places where he, 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 he responded in, in anger and boldness weren't the places we would have. So, Father, I pray that you would align us more to your Son. our eyes to the issues that are before us. May we see them not as political issues, not as cultural issues, but Father, may we see them first as gospel issues through the lens of your truth and your word. And Father, may that be what guides us in our response. Father, may that be what guides us in our leadership. Finally, Father, I, I pray with confidence this morning that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of evil around us, in the midst of even the evil we sense in our own hearts, Father. The weight can be overwhelming at times. The sadness and the sorrow can seem widespread to a point that we can't see anything else. But Father, we have confidence because your word says that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. Father, right now, it just feels like we need to be reminded of that song. darkness and evil will not have the final word. Father, may we be wholly committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. May we be instruments of that light breaking through in our world, in individual lives, whether it be the sin of racism or, or, or the sin of hatred or or the sin of selfishness and any other sin we want to lay out there, Father, may we confess those to you. May the light shine in the darkness of our own hearts and in the darkness of this country. 
Father, we pray with the confidence that it comes not because of our own ability to fix things, but with a confidence in your word and in your son and in your spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would convict us. sing together. All right, you guys can be seated. See if I can not trip over this drum. All right. Uh, this morning, uh, honestly, I think it's, it's kind of amazing where, what we're going to be doing this morning and, and what we're going to be talking about. I told you earlier that I plan to address uh, further in my sermon a little bit more about um, the things we've been been seeing uh, over the last week and frankly the last few years in our our, our country. And um, and I'm going to do that. And and the text, I think, in a pretty amazing way lends itself to that. But I did not choose this text based on uh, what has gone on this week. This text was chosen several weeks ago. I told you guys at the beginning of this series, this curveball series, that uh, I had no idea how long it was going to go. I didn't know what all we were going to talk about. I just knew that it felt like this is where God was calling us into this this season to talk about what life looks like whenever you get thrown a curveball. It hasn't gone exactly how I thought it was going to. Uh, I thought I would be talking about a few different things, but this is where God has led us week to week as we've gone through each of these different things. And and honestly, each week for me has been a bit of a wait and see where the Spirit's going to lead, and and we'll just roll with it and see what what God has for us. But trying to figure out when we were going to draw things to a conclusion and when we were going to move on, how long we needed to do things. Uh, about three, four weeks ago, I knew that this would be the final week of this series. And I also knew that Chris was going to be teaching. Uh, I knew whenever we started, or last week, Chris was going to be teaching. And I knew when we started this series that Paul was going to be somewhere uh, in, in what we were, were going to talk about. And Chris is like, ooh, I'll take that one. And I'm like, well, that's cheating, but fine. You can have Paul. Um, and, and so after that, I knew I wanted to do something in Paul's life, something having to do with Paul after Chris had spoken, but I didn't know what. About three, four weeks ago, I said, all right, I know what it's going to be. We're going to cover the book of Philemon. If you're like, what's Philemon? I didn't know that was in the, in, in the Bible at all. Well, that's because it's really easy to miss. It's one page, 25 verses. That's it. That's the whole book. It's right before the book of Hebrews. That's a much larger book. So if you can flip through your New Testament, you find the book of Hebrews. Just head to your left. That's the book of Philemon. And that's where we're going to be uh, this, this morning as we wrap up this series uh, and then begin to head into another series next week. And you'll hear more about that throughout the week uh, as, we, uh, as we go. So we're going to open to this book, Paul's shortest letter, and we're going to see how Paul, via the Holy Spirit, can lead, convict, and give us hope all at the same time in 25 short little 
verses. And I want to read this, uh, this book basically in its entirety this morning, kind of like we did when we were in 2nd and 3rd John. I want to cover the whole thing this morning. And what we'll see is that some of these things will be immediately applicable for us. Some of them will relate to uh, what our nation is going through right now. Some of it will not. That's fine. Uh, I just want to be able to teach the text and then make some application points uh, as we uh, as we go. And again, just to be clear, I'm not going to hesitate if I see a place to make an application for us now. And I won't hesitate if I see to make an application in other places uh, as well. Honestly, this book has always felt like an odd book to me. It was one of those that I felt like, why did this end up in the Bible? Certainly Paul must have written other letters uh, that didn't make it into the Bible. Why did this one stick around? 25 verses. Why did it become part of our, uh, our canon of Scripture that we call the Bible? Why this one? Honestly, it could not be in here, and it wouldn't change a shred of our doctrine. It wouldn't change a thing. There's no new theology in here. Nothing new Paul is introducing. It could be gone and nobody would know the difference, as is evidenced by the fact that nobody studies this book (laughs) because it's so short and you blast right through it. Nobody does like a 10-week series on the book of Philemon because there's not enough there. You can't do it, right? So like, we don't ever talk about it. And just goes to prove the point that you could never talk about it and you wouldn't miss out on any new doctrine. So why is it in here at all? There's nothing that you can't find in here that you can't find elsewhere in Scripture. So why should we study it? And why should we read it at all? I'm glad you asked. It might be tiny, but it is a powerful, powerful book. It is one that if you will let it sink in the message that Paul is delivering, what Paul is going to ask, it will knock you off your feet with its implications. This is why it's perfect for this curveball series, because I can promise you for Philemon, this letter was a curveball. He did not see this coming at all. And I'm not so sure he would have wanted to see it coming either. This is a total curveball for him. And I'm convinced it's why this book is in here at all. It is here to show us that our faith is not about a hollow philosophy. It is not an ivory tower faith. It is not uh, something where you just kind of sit around and debate philosophical points. That is not what our faith is. Our faith is one with profound implications, profound implications for us that profess to be followers and disciples of Jesus. So let's start at first one. And we'll kind of do a little bit of a running commentary here and explain what's going on in this verse or in this this short little letter. So Philemon, verse one, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is likely with Paul as he writes this in jail. They're 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 sending this letter out just as a as a, um, a, a hello to Philemon with some instructions here. He says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So stop there. That helps us set a little bit about who the letter is to. He's writing this letter with Timothy, right by his side while he's in jail, and he's writing to this guy Philemon, who's evidently a leader in a house church, uh, and, and we believe he's probably in 
uh, Colossae, so the same place that the, the letter of Colossians was written to. If you buy commentaries, usually this book is included with a Colossians commentary because all of this would have been uh, together. So he's writing to this guy, uh, Philemon, who Paul has much respect for, and he's likely writing to his wife and his son. That's probably who uh, these other two are here, uh, Athea and Archippus. We don't know that for sure, but that's kind of the best guess by most commentators is that uh, this is a, a family he's writing to. Uh, and they've got this church meeting in their house in Colossae, and they have done uh, well, judging by what Paul says here in these next couple of verses. Look in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, there's a lot there. We could, we, could par- we, could, we could parse out each of those phrases, but I don't think we need to. Paul is basically just acknowledging the great work that Philemon has done and how his faithfulness has been so encouraging to Paul. Even while he is in jail, he can know that the church at Colossae is in good hands because Philemon has done good work. That's not all that Paul is doing here. Paul has got something else up his sleeve that he hasn't kind of, he hasn't shown his hand yet. You see, Paul is a good preacher because he is setting Philemon up. He is getting ready to come and, and, and bring kind of a right hook to Philemon that he does not see uh, coming. Uh, he's about to make a very, very big ask of this church leader. But before we get to that big ask, I want to go back to a verse that I skipped over. Verse 3. I want to go back to verse 3. And I skipped that one, but it's a very, very important one for us this morning. Maybe the most important for us, one for us to hear uh, this morning. So, verse 3. I'm going to read it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds like a pretty boring greeting, honestly. Like, okay, Paul's just exchanging some niceties. He's just saying some kind of basics. Hey, how you doing? Grace to you. And then you move on uh, from there. But I, I think this verse is one of the keys to understanding what Paul's about to do. Why is this verse so important? Because everything Paul is about to write after this is based on the truth in this verse. That Philemon is a disciple of Jesus. He is a disciple of Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord implies lordship, that he is, uh, he is subject to the leadership of Jesus Christ. If you are here and you are a Christian, if you are watching online and you are a Christian, that describes you. Your life is subject to wherever Christ will lead. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. The two things are interchangeable. They are the same thing. Jesus is Lord, not a guide, not a philosopher, not just a good teacher, but he is Lord. He is the one in charge. We are following him. 
And that's going to be very important for us today, and it's going to be very important for Philemon in just a minute. I know this may sound elementary, and I know this may sound like, okay, you're, you're going too far back, but bear with me on this one for just a minute. I'm going to hop on a soapbox here for just, just a second. This is an important thing for us. We here are disciples of Jesus. We are to follow him wherever he leads us. You know the, the, the old song, wherever he leads, I'll go. That is our charge. That is what we do. That sounds simple enough until he leads you right off a cliff, and he will. Until he leads you into a valley, and he will. Until he leads you into pain and discomfort, and he will. We are still to follow him wherever he leads us. Friends, the older I get, the more convinced I am that this is true. That there is an endless supply of religions out there that are desperate to make you a disciple. Some of them call themselves religions. Some of them go by a different name. But they are interested in your discipleship just as much. And right now in America, and perhaps in a democracy, this is inevitable for all time. Because I think you can go back to really any point in American history and you can find this to be true. But right now in America, the religion of the moment is politics. And it goes by the name politics, but it is a religion. Make no mistake about it. It has its saviors. It has its means for salvation. It has its evangelists. And its evangelists are loud, proud, and unashamed. They have the clothes that they wear. They have all of it. That is the religion of the moment. And they will stop at nothing to make you a disciple. They will stop at nothing to make you a disciple. There are many, many people that call themselves Christians that are far, far better disciples of the Republican Party than they are of Jesus Christ. And there are many, many, many people that call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ that are far better disciples of the Democratic Party than they are of Jesus Christ. I don't know which toe I'm stepping on or if I'm, tef- if I'm stepping on one, but it's true. We are not disciples of a political party. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And wherever he leads, we will go. Friends, our culture is hell-bent on making you a disciple of one of those two parties. Hell-bent on it. It will stop at nothing to try and make you a disciple of these two parties. The evangelists are far more passionate than the evangelists that the church puts out. To our shame. They have PR that runs non-stop. I've said it already this morning, but I'll keep saying it. Too many Christians are discipled by Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, than they are by the Scriptures. For far too many people, the allegiance is to a political party and not to a risen king. Christians, listen to your media with discernment. And if you are not discerning or disciplined enough to know when you are being lied to, then turn it off. And this goes both ways. We are not disciples of a political party. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Don't see something happen in our world. Don't watch something happen around you and then run to the news to figure out which side you need to be on. Do not do that. Run to Jesus and let him tell you where you stand on these things. For that matter, the news doesn't even tell us what is true or not. I will bang this drum as loud as I can as long as I can. They have an agenda. The agenda is an evangelist for a political party and money in their pockets. They don't care if what they share to you is true or not. All they care is that you watch, advertisers send them money, and their party stays in power. That's what they want. If chaos helps, they'll fan the flames. If fear helps, they'll terrify you. If twisting the truth helps, they'll, they'll bend it until it breaks. And it does not stop. Stop running to the news looking for a political Savior. He is not there. Our Savior is not there. There is no one running for office this cycle that will be our Savior. And there wasn't the last cycle or the one before that or the one before that or any other one. And there never will be. Our Savior is not in the, the halls of political power. Our Savior is not in front of, of television cameras telling us what we should believe and what is true. The next politician that gets elected, the next particular success of a political party will not make God sit back and say, oh, if I had known that that guy was going to get elected or that girl was going to get elected, if I had known that that was going to happen, I could have just kept Jesus here the whole time. I wish I had known that was going to happen. And I would have just let you guys follow that guy. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And you will not find your joy in America's religion. We are disciples of Jesus. I'm going to say it again. We are disciples of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. There are so many things that are trying to disciple you. There are so many things that want to convert you. Some of them are other religions. Some of them claim no religion at all. We are disciples of Jesus. And where he leads... We must go, or we are not disciples. I, I, I want to drive that home. Where he weeps, we weep. Where he demands justice, so do we. Where he gets angry, so do we. Where he shows compassion, so do we. And where he is gentle, so are we. Where he is bold, so are we. We follow him wherever he goes. Paul is setting the stage here in these opening verses because he is about to make a big ask of Philemon. An ask that could never even be considered if he weren't a follower of Jesus. But since he is, Paul knows he can make the ask. Look how he continues down in verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says, this is after he kind of 
butters Philemon up a little bit and says, man, I think you're great. I think you're awesome. I think what you're doing in the church is wonderful. I'm so refreshed and I'm so encouraged. And then he says in verse 8, accordingly, I like that. That is a slick preacher move right there. He says, accordingly, he's like, so, since all this stuff is true, I got something I need to ask of you. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. Paul's laying it on thick here. Uh, He speaks like a parent. He speaks like a parent. Parents, I, I don't know if you guys ever ever do this, uh, but, but you go to your kids and you say, if I wanted to make you do this, I could. But I'd rather you just do it on your own. Like, if, if I need to pull the, the I'm in charge card, I'll pull the I'm in charge card. But I'd much rather you do it without me having to, to threaten you with my authority. I don't know, you, parents, you guys ever do that? I do it. It never works. But I do it. You know, like, I really don't want to make you do this. I would much prefer that you clean your room without me making you do it. But if I have to make you, I will do it. This is basically what Paul is, is saying. And kids, if your parents ever come to you and they say, if your parents ever come and say, I, I would love for you to do this, and if I have to make you, I will, let, let me just give you some friendly advice that you're not going to take. Do it. Your life will be so much better if you do. I promise me. Here's the thing. They wouldn't say that if you wanted to do it already. It's going to be something you don't want to do. But I promise you, if you do it, it will just make your life better. And it will make your parents' life better. So on their behalf, let me just tell you, if they ever come and say, would you please just do this without me making you do it? Just do it. And I promise you, it will make your life better. Just go and do it. This is basically what Paul says. He says, I don't want to make you do this. He says, I'm bold. That word bold is kind of a, a weird translation. It really, it, it basically means that I just want to be frank and open with you here. I have the power to do this. I can do this. If you want me to do this, I'll be honest with you here. I could just make you do this. I have the right and the freedom to do that. And Paul says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm an old man. I'm in jail. Just hear me out. This is basically what Paul says. So Paul's about to to do this. So I I told you, if your parents come and do this, then what that means is you're about to be asked to do something you don't want to do. Well, Paul's finally about to make the the ask. He's about to show his hand now. He's about to throw the punch that he's he's been hiding to Philemon. Verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might, uh, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. We'll stop there for just a second. So here comes the ask. Paul spent a few verses kind of buttering him up, saying that this is coming, and now he finally delivers the ask, which, frankly, if you're reading it, doesn't sound like that big a deal. 
It's like, all right, Paul, this is what you were like buttering Philemon up is to make this ask. You're sending this guy back to him that apparently they knew before, but you're sending him back to him and you're saying he was useful or he wasn't useful before, but he is now. Maybe he's learned a new trade. Maybe he's learned a new skill. I don't know. But hey, this guy's coming back to you. Just accept him on my behalf. Just will you do that for me, Philemon? Seems like the immediate response from Philemon is like, well, sure, Paul. I'll be glad to. Just send him on back. That's not, that's not a problem uh, at all. Um, Paul's like, I, I know he wasn't much to you before, but I love this guy to death. Man, he means the world to me. He's like my own son. And I really, I'm sending him back. And uh, I don't know, maybe this is even why God had him end up with me here in this prison, is so that he could be this close to me, and now I could send him back to you. This is basically what, what Paul is doing. So if you stop there, it's like, what's the big deal, Paul? Why, why are you kind of layering this ask so much? What is the big deal here? And if you keep reading in 15 and 16, it'll come into focus just a little bit more for us. Verse 15. He says, for this is perhaps why we were parted from, for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Now things start to start to come into focus just a little bit. So the ESV says bondservant. Does somebody else have another translation? What does it say? Instead of bondservant. Slave. That's the words. Doulos. It's translated slave almost everywhere else. Slave. Now we start to see just a little bit of what is going on here. There's a backstory. I know when we hear that word slave, all of us are like, oh gosh, how do we talk about this? Just hang with me here. There's a backstory. Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And now Paul wants Philemon to accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but on equal footing as a brother. Now we've got to do a little bit of work and we've got to figure out what's really going on here. First, this text uh, we, we, we need to clarify a few things because when we hear the word slave, there's a lot of things that pop into our mind that should not pop into our mind whenever we read this text, right? So when we think of slavery, what we think of is slavery in the American South, humans being sold and traded. Uh, it, it, we, we think of uh, what, what we know of as slavery. But in the New Testament, this is nothing that's the same. So for us to read this and to think about what we know of as slavery and import it to this text is totally inappropriate. It's what's called an anachronism. You know what an anachronism is? It is whenever you are watching a movie, like a few weeks ago I was watching Gladiator, right? Great movie. All about ancient Rome, cool deal, Russell Crowe, all kinds of great, it's a great movie. If they had like had him eating a Big Mac, that's an anachronism because they didn't have Big Macs in ancient Rome, Right? So it's whenever something gets imported to, to something that, that wasn't there at the time, that wasn't truly a part of it. So if we import our view of slavery to this text, then we would have, we've, we've completely missed the point here because that's not at all what's going on here. A slave in the New Testament was, there's not really a direct parallel for us here, but it's more similar to what we would call like an employee, right? So now don't get me wrong, a slave had no rights, but a slavery had nothing to do with race. A slavery had uh, almost nothing to do with religion. 
Slavery had nothing to do with, with people being sold and traded in that same kind of way. They weren't considered to be property in the same way that, that, that we would say that. So New Testament slavery was, was different. Typically, they became a slave if their land was conquered or if um, they were in like an extreme debt to somebody. And they had to kind of work that off, right? And then what they would do is they would basically become an employee of whoever their, their slave master was. So it's very different. Slaves weren't considered to be less than human. Slaves weren't even considered to be uh, dumb or considered to be... Uh, oftentimes, slaves would have been educated, as educated uh, as, their, as their masters would have been. So it's, it's a different type of thing that we're talking about here. Still not an ideal situation. A slave's not going to want to stay a slave forever. They're trying to uh, work themselves to freedom. But it's a little bit of a different thing than what, what we understand here. So I'm not using this text to now make this jump to racism and see where we go from there. Not how we're going to do that. That would be inappropriate, if not altogether uh, just a wrong use of this text. Um, the reality is this text here has been used to both justify slavery and to, to preach against slavery. Because whenever you start talking about something that's not even in the text, you can twist anything to make it say whatever you want. And so people have used this for both, and both would be inappropriate here. But there is much that can form our situation if we keep reading just a little bit more. But now we have a bit of a sense of the backstory. Philemon and Onesimus had a relationship before. Onesimus was a slave, not on equal footing with uh, Philemon. And Philemon... uh, uh, knows that they're not on this same social footing. And now Paul is saying, accept him back and accept him as a brother, as an equal. So welcome him back and be ready for this relationship dynamic to change. But that's not all. The plot thickens a little bit more if you keep reading. Verse 17, Paul says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even for your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So now all of Paul's prefacing and posturing begins to make a little bit more sense. Now we start to see a little bit. Not only did, did Philemon and Onesimus know each other, not only was Onesimus his slave, apparently he left in a hurry with some debts unpaid. Now people have speculated, we don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but people have speculated that maybe whenever Onesimus left, he robbed Philemon, he took something from Philemon as he left. We don't, we don't know that, it doesn't say that. But clearly, Paul assumes that there is probably some debt that Onesimus still owes to Philemon. Perhaps it has to do with the fact that he was working off a debt and he left before that debt was completely paid. We don't know for sure. But what we know is that Paul recognizes there may be some obstacles to these two being reconciled. And what Paul is saying is, look, I I realize there may be some problems here. Whatever he owes you, Put that on my tab. I'll take care of it. This is basically Paul's response. And so now we understand Paul's insistence and his careful wording leading up to this. Philemon has been wronged, and he has reason 
for not wanting Onesimus back and to never see him. He's got a debt to settle before anything else can be done, and this is the heart of our conflict. Should Philemon just accept him back now that Onesimus is a Christian? Is that required of Philemon? Is he required to forgive someone just because the other person says he is now a Christian? Christian or not, the debt still exists. He still has a debt to be repaid. Forget the awkwardness of the new relationship. This relationship has been totally wrecked for many reasons. And Philemon is under no obligation, as best we can tell morally, societally, or financially, to welcome this man Onesimus back. He's got every reason to tell Paul, no, I don't want him back. Here's what he did to me. Here's how he left me. Here's what happened. He ran whenever he owed something to me. I don't want him back. You keep him. Philemon seems to have every right to be able to say that. He could just look to Paul and say, no. After what this guy has done for me, I don't ever want to see his face again. And it's probably better for him if I don't. And yet here Paul is saying, Philemon, I could make you do it. I could make you do it if I wanted to. I'm an apostle. I have that kind of authority. But I'd rather you do it on your own. And if Philemon needed a little bit more encouraging, Paul does this just amazingly beautiful offer. He offers to cover whatever it is that is the, the, the crux of the, the problem between Philemon and Onesimus. He says, I'll cover it. I will take care of it. I will do anything I can to put your relationship back in good standing. Paul knows it's a big ask. And here's the thing. We have absolutely no idea how Philemon responds to this. We don't know if, if, he, if he welcomes Onesimus back. There's nothing else that, that, is, that is in Scripture to tell us. There is some pretty strong evidence. If you, if you can read back into some uh, New Testament church history uh, documents that, that somebody named Onesimus was probably a leader in the church at Colossae. We don't know that for sure, but you can make a pretty good... It's not a, it's not a far leap to, to believe that Onesimus becomes a leader in this same church where Philemon is at. So the, the hope is that Philemon restored him, but Scripture doesn't tell us that. We don't know. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure Philemon's response is the point, which is why we don't have it. I think the point is Paul's ask. I think that's the reason this book is here, just so we can see the ask that Paul makes. His ask and his gesture, that is what draws my eye. And I want to be clear whenever I begin here. This book is not requiring all Christians everywhere to forgive everyone at all times. If you've ever been told that as a Christian, you have to forgive everyone everywhere at all times, that is simply not in the Bible. Now, we can talk about forgiveness and we can talk about the different ways that that plays out, but that is not required of us as Christians. It's not even saying that all Christians have to forgive other Christians if they've been wrong. That is not what this text is saying. If that were Paul's point, he wouldn't have to offer to make restitution on behalf of Onesimus. He wouldn't have to say, I'll take care of what he, what he wronged you with, because he could just say, it doesn't matter what he wronged you with, Philemon. He's a brother now. Take him back. And Paul doesn't say that. 
Paul offers to make restitution on behalf of Onesimus. He simply appeals to the gospel that Philemon knows so well. He says to him, you know what it's like to be forgiven. Now won't you extend that same grace to your new brother? Welcome him home. You'll be glad you did. That's basically Paul's argument. It's a beautiful plea on behalf of a man that has likely never had anyone issue a plea on his behalf. Can you imagine that if you're Onesimus? Paul's vouching for me. It seems as though that Onesimus probably came to Christ while in prison under Paul. And now Onesimus is coming out and Paul is sending him out. And Onesimus walks out of jail with a letter of recommendation in hand. And he's probably never had that in his life. He's probably never had anyone that says, I'll back you. I'll stand up for you. Let me put in a good word for you. He's got he's to walk out feeling so much gratitude in that moment. He was a prisoner. He had wronged Philemon, and he knew it. But he knew that Paul was sending him back, but he had this letter in hand. It's a beautiful plea. And let's remember what this would have cost Paul as well, to say, put this on my tab. Paul's a prisoner. He wasn't rich to begin with. Once you get thrown in jail, there's a good chance all of his possessions are gone at this point. So how Paul intends to pay Philemon back, we don't even know. Because he probably has no money at this point. But he tells Philemon, prepare a guest room for me. If you keep on reading, he says, prepare a guest room for me. I'm going to come and I'm going to follow through and make good on what I have promised you. Paul would have had virtually no money or possessions, yet he offers restitution on behalf of another. This would have been tremendously costly to Paul. Yet he was willing to offer up himself as a means of repayment if that's what it took to reconcile this relationship. I start thinking about this letter. And it's striking to me that this, this letter is around for us to read today. I am convinced that this letter exists because the Holy Spirit wanted us to see that our faith is not one just for study halls and just for ivory towers. It's not for seminary classrooms, for sermons and for seminars. All that's good. But it is for very real life. Real, messy, ugly life that is full of frayed and broken relationships. Our faith is for these moments. A world is full of hurt, full of wronged parties, full of messes on both sides. This world that is dreadfully imperfect, but in the midst of this broken, messy, ugly, sinful world, the people of God should be relentlessly committed to the ministry of reconciliation. Because that is what Paul did. Even when it comes to great at great cost to us personally. Paul was passionately, passionately pleading on behalf of Onesimus. Not based off of some legal standing. Just based off of the gospel. Saying, welcome him back. And I'll do whatever it takes to help you make this sacrifice, Philemon. I'll do whatever it takes for you to extend this olive branch back to Onesimus. 
It would, make, it would give me no greater joy than to take on his tab if that means you guys are reconciled. Paul's heart is that these two men would have their relationship restored, their joy made whole, and their hearts mended for the cause of Christ. That's what Paul wanted to see. That's what Paul desperately wanted to see. That's what Paul was willing to endure great personal cost to see. So it should be with us as Christians. When I first read this book, I, I feel like Paul's a bit pushy. Kind of annoying. Like, really, Paul? You're, you're going to put this kind of pressure on Philemon? You know he's been wronged. You know he's in the right. How, how are you going to kind of put him on the spot like this, Paul? It's a little pushy. But the more I read it, the more I'm convinced that Paul's not being pushy. He's being passionate. Relentlessly, passionately pursuing reconciliation. So the question that I have for you, are you as passionate about reconciliation as Paul? What, is, I mean, what does that mean for you in your life? I mean, I mean, it's one thing you're talking about two like uh, offended parties and you're stepping in trying to be the peacemaker. But I think this goes well beyond that. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That is our calling as disciples of Jesus. Following Paul's example. I wonder how many of you need to make some measure of reconciliation with your spouse right now. You need to apologize. You need to apologize for something you said, for something you did, for something you didn't say, for something you didn't do, for something you forgot, for something you brought back up. I don't know. 10,000 ways that a marriage relationship can fall apart. But for some of you, that's, that's what you need to be passionately pursuing, is reconciliation with your spouse. You need to figure out a relationship that is fraying right before your eyes, even if that is at great personal cost to you, and you need to absorb some of the cost. Maybe you have a friend that you need to reconcile with. Maybe a parent. Child, maybe you've broken a relationship there, and you need to go back and say, listen, I'm sorry, I was wrong here. I shouldn't have acted the way that I did. I shouldn't have said what I did. Maybe there's another church member. Maybe somebody in this room, maybe somebody that you know, you need, to be, you need to go to them and say, listen, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how this was going to hurt you. I didn't realize that our relationship w would, would have taken this, this, this kind of a hit. You, you see, the tendency on so many people is to be conflict avoidant here. And to say, I just don't want to address it, so if I, maybe if I just don't talk about it, it'll just go away. But it won't. It'll fester. And it will become a poison. And Paul says, be a minister of reconciliation. Pursue that. Again, I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that this just needs to be carte blanche forgiveness all out there. Everything just needs to be off the table and everybody forgive everybody and we move on. There's some real like reconciliation that needs to go on there. Some, some settling of accounts that needs to happen on some level. And maybe you need a third party like Paul that comes in the middle and says, let me, let me help you with some of this. 
But I'm challenging you to be ministers that pursue reconciliation with a passion. For all of us in here, as we watch what is happening on our, on our news feeds and on our, on our TV screens, on some level, we have to redirect our hearts as Christians to be passionate about reconciliation with people that are different than us. Different races, different economic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. The gospel is still the basis for all of this. But there is a reconciliation that we can pursue as Christians and should pursue as Christians because God has called us to that. And I know there's all kinds of yeah buts. Yeah, but have, 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 you, seen, have you seen what they've done to the city? Yeah, 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 yeah but have you, have you heard the way they talk about this? Yeah, but, but, but what about this sin? And yeah, 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 but what about this sin? Man, we could do whatabouts all day. Philemon could have done, might have done, whatabouts. Yeah, Paul, I get it, but what about this? He wronged me. Paul says, yeah, I know, but I'm an old man, and it would do my heart good if I saw you guys come together and love each other and be brothers together. Friends, we are disciples of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus, we are to be passionate pursuers of reconciliation. If you're sitting in here and you're thinking, I've not done anything wrong. There's nothing I need to reconcile. I'm not a racist. Praise God. I hope you are right. Then join Paul in helping two parties that have been frayed and broken. Pursue reconciliation between others then. Even if it's at great cost to yourself even if it costs you your political party. Even if it costs you your news channel. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our calling, and it is a glorious calling rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that we can look to Jesus because he was more... he was more committed to reconciliation than anyone. He had more reason for the whatabouts. He, he didn't come to reconcile people that were kind of like him. He came to reconcile people that were enemies of him. To reconcile us to God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Written to this same church where Philemon was a part. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, Paul was willing to endure personal loss to see two parties reconciled together because he saw the implications of the bloody cross. Because he had been reconciled from a much, much worse position than the one Onesimus was in. Because he had gone from an enemy of God to a child of God. And after experiencing that reconciliation, he says, I want this for everybody. And he became a 
passionate evangelists for Jesus. And that overflowed not just from talking about his from from talking about a, a person's relationship to God, but that overflowed into talking about one person's relationship to another person's relationship. He wanted reconciliation between all because he knew the joy that was found there. And he was willing to endure great cost for it and make no mistake about it. This this reconciliation between man and God is why we exist as a church. It is the heart of what we do here. Make no mistake about it, that is the most important reconciliation for you. That is the most important thing for you to see. Paul has no basis for appeal without it. You must be reconciled to God. But make no mistake about it, that reconciliation has implications that go far beyond the walls of this church. It reaches into the daily, gritty, messy, ugly, painful realities of deeply broken, stained, wounded, hurt people. And I am resolved, based off of what I read here and Paul's own plea, I am resolved. And my prayer is that I I will have an army of disciples of Jesus behind me. But I am resolved that I will too be a passionate, relentless reconciler from this day forward. And I hope that you will join me. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask for forgiveness where reconciliation has not been my chief end whether that be in my own personal relationships with my wife and with my kids, or whether that be in larger relationships with people I've never even met. Father, I repent of not pursuing reconciliation, but instead in my own arrogance and my own pride pursuing being right. Father, I know that you have called me, you have called us to truth. But if that truth does not lead us to the cross and does not lead us to reconcile, Father, I I fear we may have missed the whole point. And I know at times I have. Father, I confess, I have no idea what it looks like for me to go from this place forward and to be a reconciler. But I know you've called me to it. So, Father, I pray that you will grant the grace for me to pursue what you have called. May we as individuals and may we as a church here at Providence Church and may we as a church in America experience the joy of seeing reconciliation across races, across uh, economic divides, across nationalities, across so many different things. May we see and experience that reconciliation. 
And may that reconciliation lead to an opportunity for us to say, this is why I do this. Because I was an enemy of God. So Father, you saved us. You saved me. And may you get the glory for it. in the name of the one whose blood reconciles us that we pray. Jesus Christ.